Being trained in an effective crisis management system is imperative for minimizing behavioral issues and the need for restraint in schools and treatment facilities. But not all crisis management systems were created equal. If we are going to meet the growing intense behavioral needs of individuals while simultaneously reducing the need for restraints, every leader and policymaker who is involved in areas related to behavioral challenges should understand what a complete crisis management system is comprised of and how to embed one into any setting. For more information, check out crisisintervention.com. Welcome to the Crisis in Education podcast, where educational leaders and experts across the world dissect the root causes of issues and explore potential opportunities for sustainable improvement across schools and districts. And now your co-hosts, Dr. Polly and Drew. Okay, welcome to the Crisis in Education podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Polly, and I'm here today with Dr. Michael Troop. Now, Michael and I did some communicating back and forth through LinkedIn, and I, I just found him to be a very interesting guy, and, and more importantly, a guy who really seems to share my values uh, and regarding leadership. Now, right now, he's a superintendent. He's been an associate superintendent. He's been the vice president of education. And uh, one of the things that was pretty cool as I looked at and unpacked some of the stuff that, he, that he's done is like, Things like, you know, designing training and, uh, you know, recreating evaluations to build capacity. I, I hate evaluations. I think they've sunk a number of schools because they're so bad. They drain the life out of administrators. Administrators hate them and teachers hate them. You know, they're, they're just like, let's just coach. You know what I mean? Like, why does there have to be all this high stake pressure stuff that doesn't produce return on investment? But anyways, so when I started reading all this stuff and that he's been, you know, he's been a, a coach of principals, I'm like, we got to talk, man. This guy's probably got a lot of great information to share with me and to to you guys my listeners so uh anyways man welcome on board brother glad to have you on the podcast dr michael troop thank you thank you for having me I'm, it's a pleasure to be here today i'm really excited about it so um i'm i'm glad to come to to talk a little bit about some of the things that i've done over the course of the last decade or so regarding school improvement and what needs to be done to to help our schools get back on track because they've been struggling specifically after COVID. But COVID actually was one of those things that helped us realize in much greater detail how much of a problem we have in education. And it, it just made it so much more apparent to the world of all the things that we're struggling with and some of the things that I've been having to focus on in my work in school improvement over the last 10 years or so. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to be on today to have a conversation with you about some of those things. I'm glad you just said that, man. Just uh, once again, just so echoing my values and my own personal beliefs. I think about I mean, this, is the crisis in education podcast, but I, what I think is crisis is opportunity. And uh, you're right. It's uncovered. Education has been struggling for a long time. You know, we know that, and I think the No Child Left Behind Act, which was intended to do good, I think has actually done a lot of harm uh, in terms of, you know, again, these evaluations and, you know, a lot of the approaches that are being used in education to drive student achievement. But unfortunately, it's creating other issues as well. So I, I think, uh, you know, we've, we've got to do better and, 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 and there are things that can be done. Um, and now that it's been uncovered because of COVID, uh, maybe, you know, maybe we can really 
really start i don't think we're ever going to go back to the beginning but maybe we can get rid of some of the old and bring in some of the news so uh anyways before we start talking about that just i don't know with a minute two minutes just a quick you know overview of your journey like how'd you get an education how'd you wind up to be a superintendent because it's very impressive man that's you know for for folks this is the ceo of like a major corporation and so you know getting to be in that position means you have to be like a leader of leaders typically unless there's like really bad selection processes where i've seen that happen i don't think it's been that way with you brother you know but how, how'd you get to where you are now oh well, thank you so believe it or not and this is something that a lot not a lot of people know about me maybe some of my close friends growing up as a kid but i was a horrible kid i was a horrible student and I was a horrible student, not because I intended to be a horrible student. It was because I didn't have the coping skills to do what I needed to do. I didn't have the coping skills. I didn't have the the skill set as a student. Nobody taught me how to do those things. And so as I'm growing up and struggling in school, I actually really had no intention in going into education as an adult. I absolutely hated it because I wasn't successful in it. It took me a long time to get my bearings around how to be a, how to be a good student, how to be a strong learner, because nobody explicitly taught me that. And that's one of the themes that I want to talk about and address later on when we start talking more about my work in school improvement. But uh, it wasn't until I was in college that I was, I was a gymnast in high school and in college, and I competed NCAA Division I at University of Illinois. And my, my former high school coach came to me and he said, look, we have an opening for a an assistant gymnastics coach back at at the high school. Would you be interested? And I said, absolutely. That would be a phenomenal experience for me. Now, little did I know at that time that going through that experience as a high school gymnastics coach, it was going to push me into this trajectory of education. So what ended up happening was over time, I was really starting to enjoy the work that I was doing as this gymnastics coach. And working really well with the kids and enjoying my experience with them. And I came to the realization, hey, you know what, I can I can probably really make a strong impact in education. So I want to get a degree in, in, in secondary education so I could be a science teacher because I, I had a background in science and something I was interested in. So I went back, got my master's degree in secondary education and started teaching in Chicago public schools. I did oh. that for... Yeah, I did that for a number of years, decided, hey, I need to get a doctorate in human learning and development because I really want to learn more about how to really tap into what's effective, what's going to work with our students. And at that point, I went through tremendous growth internally. And I was realizing at that point why I realized why it was I was struggling in school, but also why so many other students are struggling in school. And I started to do a lot of research around human learning and development and leadership and how leadership and uh, the ecosystem within a school really plays a role in how students are learning and, and how much impact teachers can make over time. So I started doing consulting work and worked in a lot of different areas. I worked in East St. Louis. I worked in Mississippi. I worked in Kentucky. I worked in all different school districts across the country and all over time I refined my my skill set and my framework to to really support campuses in terms of the school turnaround and, and 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 school improvement support to a point where now the work that I'm doing within my network of schools um, we have some schools that are struggling and then as I'm working through that process with them they're seeing 
upwards of 50% improvement in, in one year based on some of the work that I'm doing. So, Well, that's exciting, man. I know I've um, worked, uh, collaborated with a really great principal, Dr. Scott Neal, um, and um, he was struggling with behavior problems at a school, so he brought me in to consult, and uh, we were able to bring his school from a C to an A. Of course, he was leading the school, you know, but we took down the road, did it with another school, C to an A, and then we started a school turnaround process, which that didn't go very well at first. It's a lot different uh, leading uh, your own school than it is consulting and acting as a consultant with other school leaders. Um, but that is fantastic, man. I, I, I really I say this a number of times, and I, and I believe it. You know, prove me wrong otherwise. But I don't know that th- being a school leader has to be one of the most difficult leadership jobs in the country. I mean, it's not like being in private business where you have money as a powerful reinforcer or you can get rid of people uh, that aren't, um, you know, performing well, even though if you've done your best. And I hate to get rid of people. You know what I mean? To me, if I have to get rid of somebody, I failed, you know, I, you know, and I'm sure you're you're that way too, you know. We do our best. But there's sometimes where it's just a bad fit for somebody in education. Not, they're not the good people, um, but they might have great content knowledge. But as you know, instructing is a very complex and so people people fail and so principals are being dealt a very challenging hand you have teacher preparation programs and leadership preparation programs are not preparing teachers or leaders to meet the demands of the classroom and school too often i'm not going to say all schools that would be a drastic overgeneralization but a lot and plus you have a lot of teachers that are out of field coming into the field who, uh, because they have good content knowledge, they pass a certification exam. Now they're being dropped in the classroom and they're really learning on the job because certainly you and I know that passing a certification exam of any kind does not mean you can actually perform the duty. My fighter cannot pass a certification exam to say they can fight and I drop them in the ring or the cage and they're going to be able to perform. And then they take a beating while they're being evaluated and you know going to training and all this stuff. And man, that just kills morale it kills retention it kills student achievement it just has so many negative impacts so it's very difficult for school leaders but good school leaders who are worth their weight in gold can do what you're saying and they can have a drastic impact on student achievement i've read from 34 percent to 60 something percent you know and i believe it because i've seen it and it really starts with leadership so um since what since you've gone into so many schools as a consultant since you've led them what is the big issue? Like, where are these guys sh- struggling? You know, there's a way of doing business, right? And this is the way everybody's doing business. And if we keep doing business that way, we're going to continue to struggle. Like, what were you seeing when you were going out there, you know? And why was it that way? And then maybe you can get into, like, what should be going on. Sure, definitely. Well, you hit on a, a lot of different things that make complete sense to me. Because I was a university professor for eight and a half years. And in that time, I was pre- I was teaching these pre-service teachers, teacher preparatory classes, we teach things like the history and philosophy of education. We teach secondary methods. We teach uh, leadership. We teach all of these courses. But the one thing that was missing in those courses was teaching teachers how students learn effectively. We don't do that. We also don't teach them how to lead and teach with compassion. We don't teach them attunement, emotional attunement. So when a student is struggling with something that we we need to really understand what they're feeling, why they're feeling the way that they are feeling, let them be heard and recognized and say, hey, look, I, I can validate your feelings and your concerns. Instead, what we do is we teach compliance. 
We teach we need to get through a pacing guide. We teach some theory. We say, here are some instructional practices to just put under your tool belt. Let's practice them a little bit and then go out there and do it. And that's pretty much it. And then we have on the principal side of things, it's very similar because you, when you're teaching the leadership courses, because I, I have my concentrations in educational leadership, so I've taken these leadership courses. They talk about the different dynamics when it comes to school finance and, and leadership and all these different areas. But again, they fail to teach the, the leaders how to... Uh, support their teachers in a way that's going to be conducive for everybody. And what I mean by that is we, you, you hit it on the head. We talk about performance all the time, but we look at it from, from a deficit mindset and we look at it from a way in a way that it's that the principal is supposed to be the expert, but in reality, the principal is not the expert because the principal may have taught PE and now they're, they're leading a high school and they have to go into a physics classroom and they need to evaluate and coach this physics teacher having no background in teaching science at all. They don't know the pedagogical practices that are involved in that. They don't know how it works, but they're required to evaluate this teacher who's a probably teacher that's been there for 15 years that knows what they're doing, but they need to evaluate them. How is that going to improve the environment? If the principal can't even provide you with solid, solid uh, practices that are going to help them become better at what they do. So you hit it on the head. I think those are some of the major issues that we're having in a lot of our schools. And, and uh, man, we are so like-minded, man. I think uh, you mentioned coaching, too. Funny, it does not surprise me at all that you were a coach. I find that the uh, – and I, I'm not – again, I don't want to overgeneralize this, but I've seen some of the best school leaders have also – been great coaches um, because you know leading isn't about compliance uh, and I would say that teachers need to engage in leading behavior in the classrooms they're not taught how to lead because leading is about influencing a group of people towards you know a common goal and then teacher they're, they're like a CEO of their little organization in the classroom and they have you know all sorts of little employees they're they're the students and they're trying to produce this business result which is student achievement but if you if you drive people through compliance, you're going to get people doing just enough to get by and only when you're looking. And uh, there's all sorts of other side effects, as you know, to that in terms of morale that impacts performance in bad ways. But school leaders do it because they see it works, but they're only looking at one data point. That is maybe the teacher starts doing it when they have to, you know, I need you to do your stuff, you know, go do it. And they're doing it with everybody, but they might do that stuff temporarily, but then the morale goes down and performance in other area goes down. And then, and then at the end of the year, there's, retention issues and all this stuff. So I always say, if you're going to bring out the best in the students, we got to bring out the best in the teachers. If we're going to bring out the best in the teachers, we got to bring out the best in the school leaders. If we're going to bring out the best in the school leaders, we got to bring out the best in the superintendents. And honestly, the state folks are getting a freaking in educate in higher education. Cause I've taught in higher ed as well. And in leadership programs, uh, they're not being held accountable for this stuff, man, which also drives me nuts. They're the ones coming in and blaming poor school leaders. Now, school leaders blame the teachers. It's the blame game. It's vicious, and it goes round and round. And there's got to be positive accountability up the chain, right, and some sort of metric for, you know, can that teacher actually perform the pivotal teaching skills before they go into the school? And what's some longitudinal data for teachers that come out of this university, et cetera, et cetera? There's so many different things, but instead we're trying to beat, beat it out of people. So and I know that you are not doing that because you would never move a school from a C to an A. There's no doubt about that because it is very difficult. 
let's take a quick break. If you work across schools or treatment facilities and you want an environment characterized by students or clients behaving well and meeting their goals, you need Everyday Behavior Tools. These tools are so powerful and generalizable that you can train anybody anywhere in them. And here is the best part. The entire instructor training is online. If you are interested in becoming an Everyday Behavior Tools trainer to improve behavior in your organization while also generating more income for yourself, go to crisisintervention.com. Yes, it is. And I think, so here's what a lot of teachers do. This, when I go into the work that I go into and I'm hired to go in, and I was hired to go into specific schools, I would see a lot of compliance that drove, drove everything. In fact, one of the first things that I would look for, and this is one of my little secrets, is when I go into a school and I'm observing what's happening, if I see that there are a lot of students that are lined up outside the principal's office, or I see that there are there are a lot of yelling that there's a lot of yelling that's going on in the school, I know that it's really compliance driven. I know that this 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 the teachers and the administrators don't have the skill sets that they're going to need to be effectively building the capacity and the capability of their students and that they're not really in tune with what's happening. So that's like my first indicator that there's a problem on the campus is when there's so many behavioral issues and those things could be resolved. Now, can I tell you a quick story about something that happened to me just recently? Please do. Okay. So I was at a campus and I was working with an administrator on one of the campuses and we were talking about this idea around emotional attunement where uh, the 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 adult in the room is listening to the student and really trying to find out why they're feeling the way that they're feeling and and going through a series of questions to try to figure it out and try to validate the student and literally five minutes after I started this conversation there was a, a, a student that walked into the room and he was <laughs> crying and he was upset and and we were told that the student was really angry, started yelling, and started to throw chairs in the room. And so he walks into the principal's office, and the first thing the principal said to the student was, so I hear that this happened. How could you have handled the situation differently? And this actually got the kid a little bit more upset. So you hear his voice start to shake more. He starts to get elevated a little bit more. He starts to get upset. Now he's starting to stand up and move around. He's getting really anxious. And now he's starting to, to cry. And so I, I, asked, I asked the principal for permission to kind of step in and, and, and talk to the student. And I said, look, buddy, I see that you're really upset right now. Can you, can you just share with me why you're so upset? Because it, I can see the emotion is really upsetting to you. And I'd really like to know why. Why? Why are you so sad right now? This was a second grader. And he said, well, when I was in class, we were doing some sort of project with crayons and this, this other student took my, my green crayon away from me and I got really upset and I wanted it back. And I went to tell the teacher and the teacher said, well, we have plenty of other crayons here. You can just use this one. But he didn't want that one. And I said, well, I can see why that can make you upset because you, you shared with the teacher that that was your crayon and you wanted it. And it made you really upset when you couldn't get it back. And he said, yeah, that's exactly right. So he stopped immediately crying because I validated that he was upset about it. And then I said to him, so was there something that was special about that crayon? And he said, yeah, it was actually my previous school. My teacher that I really, really liked gave me that crayon. And that crayon was taken from me. 
And it made me upset when I told my teacher I wanted my crayon back and she didn't give it back to me. I said, that must have made you feel like really upset and very unfair, right? And he said, yeah, it did make me really upset. And now that I think about it, I probably should have handled the situation a little differently. I probably should have just told my teacher the reason why that crayon was so important to me. And then we had this conversation on what he can do next and better and, and to kind of regulate his emotions when he's feeling that way. Now, that response was it literally, even though it took me a few minutes to say this, it literally took five seconds for me to go through this process with him. And he went from 150 down to five in terms of his emotional response, just because I made him feel validated, heard, and seen. Now, that's a skill set. That's a skill set that teachers don't get taught in any pre-service prep program. They need to do school leaders. Right. Nobody learns these things. Mm-hmm. But it's those slight little things that make a huge impact and can make a huge difference on the life of a, of a child. But I don't see that happening anywhere. It's all about that compliance. Well, you got to do this and we got to get through the pacing guide as quickly as possible. And everybody's so overwhelmed because they don't have the skills that they're going to need to really do what the the job that needs to be done. Well, I, again, we we agree a hundred percent. I actually use approach. You would probably love this. You might want to check my, um, uh, because I know you're, you're trained, uh, educational psychologist. Um, I use approach called act and it's so simple. You mentioned earlier that people are, you know, having problems coping. You, you had problems coping. And so I think you would agree with me that uh, the, the research that says that anyhow, if you don't, but any will, uh, mental health is plaguing our education, right? It's not just our students. It's our educators as well. It's teachers as well. It's our school leaders. It's very difficult. And so there's not enough mental health uh, um, professionals to go around to meet the growing demands, growing mental health needs of our students and educators. And so what do we do? Um, well, you could say we can hire more guidance counselors and hire more social workers, but there's just not, there's already a shortage there. And even if you hired a whole bunch, you still couldn't meet the demand. So what we need to do is do like what you needed and what I needed as well. And so many people is that we need to be taught how to cope and however we do it, it's got to be very simple because complexity is the enemy of execution and the enemy of scalability. And we need something that's scalable. And so this approach called accept, acceptance commitment training Um, It's almost like the science, it's like the behavior science of mindfulness, and it's rooted in deep science, Uh, but it's simple because it's four boxes, it's it's me or you in the center observing, and you can actually use this as a school leader, by the way, superintendent, because you can have in the bottom right-hand corner box is shared values, it's, you know, what are our values, what's important to us, way of being and doing, right? People, like kids don't know what their values are, you know, it's starting to learn what you value, who do you want to be when you grow up, who do you want to be now, who do you want to be grow up, you know? It was, you know, school leaders, you know, like what did you say? We have these values in the schools, but okay, what are those, right? We have to identify those. What does that look like? Then there are those things that show up for us, right? We call them in my field, covert behaviors. These are private events. These are your thoughts and your feelings and your, you know, physiological things that only you can recognize, only you can observe those. So that's in the bottom left-hand corner, right? This is what shows up. In the top left-hand corner, when you feel this way, you tend to behave in ways that get rid of those feelings, right? Like the kid yelling and telling them they need this crayon, you know, or it could be a school leader yelling at their teacher because the teacher's doing something wrong. And maybe they're right about what they're telling them to do, but that's not aligned with their values of being respectful and cooperation and learning and a positive culture and whatever all those things are. 
And so what's the secret? Well, cognitive behavior therapists, and I came up from clinical social work, right? They'll say to change your thoughts to change your behavior. But we believe that there's a behavior analytically speaking, there's a there's a shorter way to do it. And that is be aware of your thoughts. Be aware that when you think and feel this way, that you behave in that way. Be aware that that behavior is not aligned with your values because you've already outlined those, right? Accept that you feel that way and initiate behavior that's going to move you toward those values. I'm, as I'm pointing, nobody, if you're listening to the podcast, you can't see me pointing, but I'm going to the top right-hand corner of the box there. And that's where the rubber meets the road, right? So in this case, uh, what do you, what should you do? Like if you want to, if you want learning in your classroom, what behaviors do you need to engage in to do that? If you're a leader, if you want to get the best out of your teachers, you know, and you want them to promote learning, what behaviors do you need to engage in? But first we need to get them to recognize that when they feel this way, we behave that way. And that is not aligned with your values. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I love that model because it's, 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 it's a process that teachers, administrators, and even students can go through that will help them teach students self-regulation even. Yes. Yeah. Self-awareness. I'm aware yeah. that I have this problem, that, that I'm angry right now, I'm, uh, and how am I going to manage that? And emotion is in, inextricably linked to how we learn. Mm-hmm. And if we can't regulate our own emotions, it's very difficult for us to learn. So going through that process is helping students, teachers, everybody just understand the why, understand intention, purpose, regulating their emotions and their behaviors so that we can get to the point where we can actually teach them what they need to learn in our schools. I That's it. it. That's it. it. Well, dude, maybe we'll, we'll speak offline about doing something like this, man, because you're in a position where it's so simple. When uh, my colleague Anik and I had gone out, we've we've done training from uh, the, the Arkansas DOE. We had 250 school leaders and state leaders in a room, and they just ate it up because it makes so – much sense because it's so simple behaviorally it's like a preference assessment it's a functional behavior assessment but self-functional self self-preference self-functional behavior assessment uh self uh uh, uh self-validity instead of social validity and a behavior intervention plan so what do you need to do that are going to help you produce these you know value these values and the valued outcomes right values are not goals their ways of being doing, but you can have value driven goals certainly so maybe we'll talk more offline about that because you and i again sp- same values. We're just speaking a different language, but it's all the same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. So we have that that one piece of it where we talked about the the emotional attunement and really understanding, recognizing student emotion, really uh, helping them realize that those the students are being heard. We understand what they're doing. We understand why they're feeling the way that they're feeling. And here's how we can help manage those things. That's why I was talking about earlier about compassion. That we need to have compassion. And it goes one step further than empathy. It really goes to, I, I recognize that you're struggling with something. How can I help you? How can I help you get through this? And that's what teachers need to be doing. That's what leaders need to be doing. And if they're able to, to do those things, we're going to see a shift. I strongly believe we're going to see a shift. I've seen the shift. So, I, I, yeah. Go ahead, brother. So the other piece of that is once you're able to really help them understand the, the emotional piece of learning, then we can get into structuring how students learn. And 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 so my work in, in school improvement is really focusing on building teacher capacity around those structures so students can learn effectively, but also having helping them recognize that when you're going through this process, there's a lot of skills that the students need to learn to be able to do these things. 
So I can give you an example. One of the first things that I like to teach teachers when they're putting together their their lessons and their units of study or even just in front of their students in general, I always have them or I want them to start off by uh, trying to elicit feedback from the students on what they know. What are their preconceptions? What are their misconceptions? Because misconceptions are going to drive so much. But in that process, I also want them to to try to to share the reason why we're doing this, help the students create an understanding of, hey, we're learning this because <laughs> it's it's and that's where that objective comes into play. And people don't understand the objective. They write it down because it's a compliance thing, because I'm told to write the objective down. So they write it down and they go through it, but they're never really told the rationale for why that objective is important. It sets the context for everything else. It really does, man. And in our field, we call it an establishing operation or motivating operation. It creates a want. If you don't, somebody comes out and tells you you need to do this, but you don't understand why, you're not going to invest your time and energy of it. Or, or if you invest your time and energy of it, it's going to go away if you don't see that's producing some sort of valued outcome. But just like the teachers need to know the why about why they should engage in that, which clearly, if they do not know to do that, again, it's a failure of teacher training, right? Or it could be leadership training if they're not helping them to understand this is important. This is why it's important. Here's how it's going to benefit the students. But I also want to say this, here's how it's going to benefit you, right? Because we can say, make it about the students, but we can't make it. I know you'll, you're agreeing with this. We can't make it about the students without making it about the adults. Um, and that why engages the students and engagement is going to increase the likelihood that they're going to learn. It's also going to reduce the likelihood that they're going to be acting out behaviorally, which is an important reinforcer for a teacher to know, you know? So there's a, a number of reasons why you want to do this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, you have to set the relevance for the kid and let them, the kids and let them know. But the other piece of that is that give the teacher should be able to give the students an opportunity to, sh to explore, well, why is this important to me? I know that Dr. Troop is telling me that this is important. We're learning about the Pythagorean theorem and it's important because of X, Y, Z, but how could I use that? And I, I almost look at it from the perspective of, you know, job crafting and learn crafting <laughs> that students can learn to craft what they're learning about in school to help them make relevance to what they're learning. So I, I think that's another thing that during this process of introducing a lesson and talking about these preconceptions and misconceptions and creating that relevance around why this is important to give the students the opportunity as well to, hey, why why would something like this be important to you based on your goals and the careers that, that you want to have in the future? How could this be beneficial to you? Yeah. So don't you think that would be a, uh, I'm not sure how, I'm sure that's stuck into the standards somewhere, but I would think like assessing, problem solving, making decisions and at least hypothesizing, you know, potential actions uh, would be some of the critical learning outcomes for, you know, uh, along with fluency in reading and fluency in math facts uh, in your K through tw two. Like if you don't have fluency in like math facts and in reading, and I would also think this part about, you know, effective, you know, critical thinking, um, the rest of your school career, for lack of a better term, is going to be become progressively more challenging. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100 percent. It's it's something that we do miss the mark on and it's something that we definitely need to improve upon and change. So, um, yeah, it shouldn't even be something where it really it shouldn't even be something where like, well, here's what needs to happen. 
it's almost like a no-brainer. You know what I mean? Like, it should be happening. Like, why isn't it happening? And yeah. it's coming back to the the standards and the scope and sequence and, you know, this this whole thing where we've got to produce student achievement. And that's the main result that we're measuring. But, but to your point, you said we need people to be able to emotionally regulate, right? Well, if we want them to emotionally regulate, what's a, uh, a metric for that might be that I feel safe. You know what I mean? I feel like I can, you know, I'm being helped by the teacher. I can, I can feel like, you know, I feel supported and the, the student, we should have that measure, right? Would you, do you think that we should have that measure of student be checking in to see how they're feeling about things? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I think psychological safety is a huge component to a classroom. And that's not something that I see regularly. I, and that's something, again, we don't go back and teach these things to our pre-service educators. We don't teach them about psychological safety and the importance of it and how that works. I don't know if you've heard of Tim Clark uh, and, and his work on the four stages of psychological safety, but he has this four-step process of, and, and it's a very linear process mm -hmm. where you have to create inclusion safety first. And if you don't, if people don't feel like they're included and they don't feel safe to learn, then they're not going to get to that next level. And that goes back to our, that whole thing about emotional regulation and safety. You need to feel included. You need to be a feel part of that group. And if you, if you're not part of that group, you're not going to get to that next level, which is learner safety and, and, and feeling safe to, to take some risks in learning and learning new things. And then the third stage of that is contributor safety. So once I've learned something, I feel safe to contribute to the class and let people know, hey, this is what I'm feeling about this. or this is what I think about this. And then challenge assumptions. So that's the fourth stage of challenger safety, where you're able to challenge if, if, if the teacher said something that you don't necessarily agree with or another student, you, you're able to challenge that in a, in a productive way in a respectful way, but you're able to challenge those things. And that's part of what the, the psychological safety brings is allowing for that thought and that problem solving and that ability to feel safe in the environment, to be yourself and do the things you need to do. I, I love that, man. I'm glad that you're turning me on to that. Uh, I have a whole, I hadn't heard of him. Uh, I do have a whole chapter in one of my books on psychological safety because I really believe in it. And what I would say is for, for in my work, um, I always look at student behavior uh, in the student achievement uh, is two results, right? This is a result. Whatever they're doing in the classroom, and however they feel is a result, right? It's a result of what the teacher is doing on and and with them, right? So, but if we're gonna, if we're gonna, we want that teacher to create psychological safety in in the classroom, then I would want to apply that same concept of uh, you know those four stages psychological safety to the the teachers, right? Because you gave some concrete measures there, and I thought those measures were very cool. And I think it would be easy to generalize those to like, you know, the teachers like questioning things, you know what I mean? That's a measure that, that you as a leader create the environment where they can come in and give you feedback on something, you know, as opposed to them feeling afraid, you know, so they gotta, they gotta feel, you know, inclusive and they gotta feel like it's okay to learn and contribute and, and to challenge things. I, I like that so much. And I know that, um, in, there's a there's a lot going on in terms of uh like psych uh trauma informed care. Are you familiar with trauma informed care? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So I think it's important. Now I would argue that the principle should be everywhere: safety, choice, empowerment, trustworthiness, collaboration. That, that's just the way it should be, right? I mean, I think it. You know, but those principles need to be unpacked into behavior because they're only principles. So what does that look like for helping? And we have to make sure that it's generalized up up the chain of performers, right? Again, if you want the student to feel safe. 
what's the teacher need to do? If you want the teacher to need to feel safe, what's the school leader need to do? And up the chain to district leaders, because I've seen Michael and I got a feeling that it must be pretty cool to have you as their superintendent, because I bet you're not this way at all. Uh, but I see a lot of school leaders that are very afraid of the district. And uh, but there's no metric. We're talking about psychological safety for the students. There should be a metric for that. And it, it is research. Marzano has some stuff in his meta-analysis about it, uh, about checking in with the students at all grade levels. It could be a smiley face. I feel happy. You know what I mean? I've, whatever yeah. it is up to high school. But it needs to happen for the teachers and the school leaders. And I don't think that it should be reported directly to them. It should be reported to their coach. And the coach meet with them so they can have robust conversations. Otherwise, people are going to lie. And we're going to get lots of bias especially under conditions where they haven't met that highest level of the hierarchy uh, of the psychological safety work. They can actually, you know, uh, uh, challenge what's going on because they're going to be afraid of their job. Now, um, in too many, well, let me ask you this, man. And if you're not doing it, it's okay, man. Uh, I don't, it's not because everyone's doing it. How often are your principals required to do uh, their climate surveys? Yeah, we do climate surveys at least twice a year. And we look at that data. We for for us as district leaders, we take that data very seriously because it informs how we work and how we want to make changes to ensure that our that our staff are are, are happy and they're thriving and they're doing what we need to be doing. We we also um, we do our these surveys for our parents too, at least twice a year. Okay, and, and we want to figure out. Okay, so based on what we're getting feedback from our parents and our community on what other things do we need to change from a systems level to ensure that our constituents are being served appropriately as well. I, I love that. And I will say this uh, to that because you're, you're better than the average. Um, I think we need to look at these surveys as a form of assessment. And can you imagine teachers giving formal assessments twice a year? Um, it's not going to guide instruction. Um, these, I don't think it needs to be a big climate survey, but if it was a turnaround school, I'd want, if I was a school leader, I would want weekly data in a form of a five question survey to give input for my stakeholders from the teachers, right? To find out how are you doing? Do you feel supported? You know, a couple of other things, we're moving in the right direction. Do you have any suggestions to make something better? Is there anything that we can do to help you? And using that data, because if a school leader, if it's six months gone by or four months, whatever, half a school year is five months have gone by and the teachers are feeling one way, but the leader is not aware of that. It's spread through the school. It could be like a great leader who's well-intended that there's been miscommunication and they are not aware of that because they don't have that metric to steer them. That metric also needs to be in place to for the coaches to guide them because the coaches should not be beating them over the head with that, right? That's counterproductive. That's going to create more compliance, more coercion, like you said. But I think in order to make the, them do that, unless it's like a forward-thinking superintendent like yourself – it's got to be coming from the state where we say we're going to measure these things, right? Student mm-hmm. achievement is very important, but also we need to know that people feel safe, right? We need to measure psychological safety or whatever term that we want to use for it because if we agree, if we all agree that we fundamentally have to have these things in place if we're going to create a rich learning environment, then we have to have a metric there for it that we can use to reinforce and learn from the schools that are doing well so we can help other schools by virtue of that standard. What do you, what do you think about that stuff? Yeah, I think that's great. In fact, you know, policy drives practice, 
really. It's what we're, we're held accountable for. And so I think we, this does need to be changed on a policy level because if it's not changed on a policy level, schools aren't going to do it. And it's not because they don't want to do it. It's because what's going to take priority? Priority is going to be what policy dictates is the priority because we get funding, schools get funded through the state and the federal government, and they're making the rules. And so they're making the policies and we have to follow those policies and that's how we get funded. So it really puts us in a, a position where if the policy isn't necessitating this particular practice, but it's necessitating all of these other practices, the priority is going to be on the practices with, that the policies are endorsing. Uh, well, I agree with that, except for that this stuff ties into if you really believe that this stuff ties into the folks who aren't the folks who aren't doing it, either don't know don't do not recognize how it ties into student achievement or they're afraid that they don't want that data out because they've probably been punished in the past for, you know, whatever it is. They don't want to know. We just need to move it. Right. And so under good leadership, you will move up that and you will be okay to accept feedback. Right. Because there's lots of reinforcement. People know that's like learning. You don't go from being an average leader to a spectacular leader overnight. It's learning. you got to walk before you crawl, et cetera, et cetera. And there's got to be some sort of metric for that. And, yeah. you, of course, you have lagging indicators like teacher turnover, which is a huge one, your climate surveys and stuff like that. But a lot of people don't even – they do nothing with those because they don't even believe that, this that the school leader is going to respond to. So I would recommend to any school leader listening to this, you have to involve your stakeholders, which means you have to know and you have to you have to communicate with them, which means you have to know how they're feeling about things. And when you act on how they're feeling, they're going to buy into what you have to say and what you have to do because you can respond to their stuff, right? And they feel part of it because if they author it, they'll own it. And this can make such a tremendous difference and tie right into everything that you've been talking about. It's just so – it. I didn't mean to get up on my uh, – my soapbox there, brother, but it's like, is it so important that we check in to see how people are feeling? Agreed. I agree. It's, it's, it's change management is really what it comes down to fundamentally, right? And, and change management means that everybody needs to know what we're doing, why we're doing it, how to do it. And if they know those things, they're going to be more equipped. They're going to be more apt to try these things out and do them effectively. But if you're not a, if you're not a strong change manager, it's going to be much more difficult to do that. And part of being a good change manager is, like you said, those formative checks. How are we doing? Are we meeting our goals? What are you struggling with? How can I help you? How can I help make this better for you? And we, we just simply, I, I know that there are districts that do those things and they do it very well. And there are others that don't because they just were never again taught. I know, I know, um, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, a, a, a district that we're, we're uh, consulting with. Um, over in Pinellas County, large, they have 120 schools in it. One of the principals, maybe more than one are happening, but I know one is Dr. Proctor, um, is surveying their teachers every week. Um, and because she was coming in as a new school leader um, to, 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 to make a turnaround, and it's happening. And it wouldn't be happening if she didn't have input. Um, and certainly other things that you mentioned, change management is a skill. Um, but it means that we have to communicate regularly with stakeholders and that communication needs to be bi-directional. It's got to be reciprocal in nature, you know, and we need to look at how people are performing as data for us as a leader, not to blame. Like, here's what they're doing. What do I need to do more or less or differently to produce this kind of outcome? And it's it's incredibly important, man. Um, I, I just, you know, hope that school leaders will just take it and, you know, I, the ones who really have high values and, uh, you know, can see that 
or believe that to bring out the best in the students, you've got to bring out the best in the the teachers. They're going to be the ones that when they have the aha moment, and they're, they're going to dive in and want to do it. So anyways. I agree. I agree. 100%. 100%. So I, I got I got us off track a little bit there, I think. I mean, we weren't. We were talking about some of the challenges that were going on. Uh, and you were talking about, like, we have to teach students how to learn. And we have to teach uh, teachers to bring it, start with things like the why of the learning. Because we got to, you know, uh, and, and also getting the baseline, getting kids to think about what they know now and helping the teacher to see what they know now. So it gives them some sort of guide, right, as part of the form of assessment. So they can say, well, here's the behavior change that occurred, or here's the learning that's occurred for me. Yeah. And I think that's where we, yeah. Yeah. So here's the other piece. This is the part that I really get excited about Mm -hmm. because I see this happening all the time, pretty much in nearly every school that I've been in. And that is, let's say, for example, you and I are students in this class and the teacher is going to disseminate information via lecture style, right? So Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I've never been taught how to engage in a lecture effectively where I know what's really happening. So I look at it from, as, I've, as, as a teacher, I'm organizing my unit of study based around big ideas, essential concepts, enduring understandings, all of that stuff from Wiggins and McTie. And I have this kind of f- hierarchical framework in which I'm operating under, where I have this one big idea, and then those are separated out into supporting ideas and so on and so forth. And so my first week or my first couple of days, I'm going to talk about this piece of the idea, I'm going to introduce it. Then we're going to do some other things, dive deeper into it. You know how that goes. But here's the problem with it. What I found is that when students are in a lecture and they're listening to a teacher talk, they're listening to a teacher talk like it's a regular conversation. There's a, there's a, there's a beginning and a distinct end. And, and then they move on to something else. So there's a beginning and a distinct end. And they don't really understand the hierarchical nature of a lecture in that we're going to be talking about uh, symbiotic relationships today. And then tomorrow we're going to talk about, you know, something else related to that, but not exactly related to it. But the students aren't making the connection that what we talked about yesterday or last week actually relates to what we're talking about today. And teachers need to be able to say, look, we talked about this last yesterday where we, we asked the students, tell me what we learned about yesterday. How did we learn about it? Why is it important? Great. So here's what we're going to learn about today. Let's get you some, to get them curious about it, let's ask them some questions. What do you know about this already? What have you experienced? Students don't know necessarily the reasoning and the rationale behind it. So they look at these lectures as distinct beginnings and ends, and they don't have, they're never taught hey, I need to start looking for specific patterns or connections between one idea to the next. And that's a huge problem that, that students don't know how to do that and that we're not teaching them. I, listen, man, I, again, I, I can tell you that I do very well with visuals and I don't know about how deep the research is behind it. I can tell you that I love it. Thinking maps, uh, helping people kind of to connect the dots between where they were and where they're going and have that path. I mean, we do it all the time when we lay out an agenda and our objectives and, you know, like, uh, you know, helping people see the path that's going on. And I think to your point, we, we need to help students connect those dots through their learning, which means I think laying out the path first, saying here's yeah. here's where you are, you know, here's where some other people are, here's where you're going, you know, if they can connect and build off of one another, I think you're 100% right with that. It makes good sense to me. 
Yeah, it's it's building their relevance. It's building their attention to do certain things and 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 start to make those connections. And so, what I've one of the shifts that I make with teachers is I tell them exactly what you did, what you just said is, tell them, give them the roadmap up front. <laughs> tell them all the things that you're going to be talking about. Also, let them know and say, look, we're going to be when we're learning about these things. I want you to make try to make connections between some of these ideas that you're seeing in this visual representation. You're going to do it on your own, but I'm also going to share some of these with you because it's really important. And that's guiding the students rather than just saying, okay, <clears throat> students, today we're going to, here's the objective for today. Uh, and now I want you to open up your textbook to page 97. And John, I want you to read this first uh, paragraph for me. And then, or the teacher's just starting to talk about these concepts or these ideas without really adequately introducing them. So now what I, I try to tell teachers that think of each lesson as a page in a book and your unit of study as a chapter. And if you, if you look at it from that perspective, every page needs to make sense within that, that, that chapter. Otherwise, if you don't, then the reader isn't going to really understand the points you're trying to make. They're not going to make those connections. And that's something that you need to really be, pay attention to when you're creating your units, but also how you share that information with your students is really the essential part of this. Man, I, and I think, again, I want to I zoom this up to the leader, school leader, and even superintendent uh, in state if they would, but let's look at a school leader. Um, everybody's, you know, in education, we're there to, you know, produce a result. If it's a turnaround school, right, which you know, there's turnaround schools that are maybe static right and there's turnaround schools that are the velocities going the wrong direction so you got to stop that bowl from going downhill and you got to push it back up man and so if you're going to do that people need to know it's coming kind of coming back to change management or this piece of it like where you're at right now the direction it was going and why it was going in that direction and then have some sort of metric to know that you're moving in the right direction so it's a chapter we got through this chapter here's what's next so every time you get through that section that that chapter that page it's an accomplishment and they know where it stands in line of what's coming next and what's coming next and what's coming next because it can feel like you're not learning everything right which is to your point asking the students what they know and finding out what they know so they can compare where they were to where they are now and but they still know where they're going and i think having these visuals like classroom leaders need it school leaders need it right and so we can then the schools and their teams can self-assess where are we at right now okay we know that here are the indicators of where we're at here's what it's going to look like next the next step and you start to produce those things uh, and I think, you know, things like, again, that social validity, as I mentioned, that could be a metrics like, all right, only 10% feel that, you know, they're happy right now and they feel safe. We're going to get that to 25% then 42%. And behaviorally speaking, people are going to start asking questions. They're going to get more suggestions. We're going to see kids not running the hallway, you know? So it essentially becomes a, like a bars, you know, behavior anchor radar scale, you know, it becomes some sort of a way to see that you're moving in the right direction. But through some sort of visual schematic, I think, you know, people need to know to your point right down to the student all the way up the chain, man. So I, I, I really love what you're saying. I just like to connect the dots between everybody. Yeah, no, it makes, that makes total sense. We have to, as we make these changes, we, we constantly need to be measuring the efficacy of what we're doing. And, Cause if we're not, then we're not going to know if we're being effective. And in a school turnaround situation, you need to make changes really all the time. 
you're, you're, you're trying to make improvement over a very short period of time. You have 180 days in a school year, typically. That's not a, really a lot of time to make effective change, but you have to. And so you have to be measuring that consistently over time, over that 180-day period. And you have to be reacting and responding to the data on a regular basis if you want to see impact. And well, that's, you, yeah, I right. think you also you can't be looking at one of the errors that leaders make, and I didn't know that you didn't, did, definitely did not do this, is that they're only looking at student achievement. That's the metric that they're living and dying by. And you can't look at all those other leading indicators that let you know if things are moving in the right direction. And even if it's not hard data, things that you already mentioned, like somebody just calming down and admitting that why they had a problem, that's a data piece, right? Somebody feels safe enough to admit this to you, the teacher or the school leader. Somebody came in to say, hey, I made a mistake. If nobody's saying they're making a mistake, man, that's bad for you because they're afraid of you. And when you get people who are afraid, feel unsafe, don't feel respected, they're going to be compliant and they're going to do just enough to get by. And only when you're looking and at the end of the year, they're going to leave if they have a better option. Yep. And that inhibits progress. <laughs> yeah, brother. Yeah. So, so we, so we started with the learner, uh, we started with the teacher saying we got need to have the teacher to create some sort of, um, uh, visual. We don't want them to teach in isolation. Uh, we want to be able to connect the dots, which I think it's what I really love about what you're saying, uh, Michael, is that you're really breaking these down into small behavioral chunks it's doable. It makes sense, right? It's pivotal stuff, asking good questions, which, you know, you didn't, you said that throughout, right? But question asking is a pivotal learning behavior, not only for teachers, the student, but also for school leaders, the teachers, because we need them to be able to assess problems, solve, make decisions, take action independently of the school leader. And telling does not promote that, right? It does not help for learning because people become prompt dependent. You don't want that. We need independence. So how do we, just in the interest of time, brother, because I know you could go on and on about, about teachers. What about school leaders, right? What about school leaders have you found that is pivotal that they engage in? Because it's great that the teachers, the students need to do this. They need to engage in learning. They have to have these skills. It's great that we said we need the teachers need to ask better questions and give a visual and, you know, make sure they connect the chapters of the book. But now it comes down to school leaders. What are this? How is the school leaders going to create an environment that brings out the best in teachers so they can bring in those areas so they bring out the best in students? Yeah, I love that question because it's something that I, I have to work with every day. And most of my work now is on the leadership side. How do you build the capacity and the leadership, the capability and the leadership? And there are two things distinctly that I think are really important here. The first one is that the leader needs to take ownership. They can't blame others. If something goes wrong in the school, they're part of that problem, right? And in order for, for them to take ownership, the second thing that they need is humility. <laughs> they need to be humble enough to know that they're also in this process of learning with their group. And that by creating this environment where we're all learning together, I'm a humble. I don't know everything. I don't know all the answers. I can't provide you with all the answers, but I do know that we're going to be able to do it together and we're going to own it together. I'm not going to blame Paul because this particular student is doing horrible. That's part of my responsibility as a leader in the camp on the campus. If that student is not feeling comfortable enough to talk and share his feelings to his teacher or anybody else, me as the principal, that's my problem. That's my problem. And I love that. And cultivating that humility is very important. And I think it means like the, the district leadership needs to create an environment where they can 
accept that, right? Because if they are beating them over the head, they're gonna they're gonna blame, right? And they might even come into this position under bad leadership, and uh, you know, because they haven't had good mentors, and we both agree that higher education is not doing they're not doing the job, which I I think they could do a lot better. One of the ways they could do it better immediately, especially with AI, is simulations. Right, have somebody lead a school, have all the things that happen in school all day, so they're experiencing consequences of their behavior. Maybe you know something that you something else that you and I can collaborate on. I'm talking about this with uh, uh, my colleague Anika, um, but I think the the district leadership needs to create an environment for the, the the school leaders to do exactly what you said. Right, there's got to be positive accountability for them. Um, when my fighters lose, I don't blame them. The first thing I think about is what do I need to do more or less or differently, even if they didn't train well enough. Like, all right, how do I create environment? How do I influence them better? You know, how can it be better for my fighter to do that? And if I'm doing everything I can behaviorally, checking in with them, giving them information, doing the best I can to inspire them, well, you know, I'm still going to figure out, try to figure out what else I can do. So what kind of, how do you as a district leader, as the, the CEO, as the leader of leaders of leaders, how do you create that environment so your school leaders feel safe to admit they're making mistakes and to accept feedback like that? Because if they're not accepting feedback, I would say that's a measure of your leadership or their coach's leadership, right? So how do you do that there? I've got my own thoughts on it, but I'd love to hear. Yeah, so the first thing I do is I also admit my mistakes in public. I sh- I sh- if, I make, if I make a mistake on something, I will be the first person to own it. Humanity. And I will let I everybody it. know, hey, I messed up here. You're right. But let's come together and find ways. So you to, model. To, model. I model. Yes. And I'm awesome. not, And I show that I'm not afraid to share my mistakes because I'm human. Mm-hmm. I don't, there's not a, any leader that I know of in the entire world who is perfect at everything that they do. But they expect everybody else to be perfect. <laughs> and But they're not. So mm-hmm. I, I have to model that behavior. That's but awesome. I, also come at, I also come to it from a coaching perspective, I'm constantly coaching. I'm recognizing all the great things that our teachers are doing, the great things that our leaders are doing. And I'm also coaching them through and helping them develop the skill sets that they need to improve. I'm, I'm more focused on uh, capability and capacity development and helping teachers and leaders reach their goals than anything else. Because, and, and I don't like to dictate exactly what it is necessarily. Sometimes I have to, as a leader, I have to say, look, this needs to get done. And this is how it needs to get done. There's, there's a time and a place for that. And I'm not mm-hmm. thinking that that's not something that we need to do as leaders. But my primary emphasis is on developing capacity and helping people reach their optimal level of performance, whatever that may be, whether I'm defining it or they are defining it or we are both defining it. That's my objective. So always being out front and saying, hey, I made a mistake. Let's work on this together. Having a collaborative nature and coaching people through to help them get proficient at what they're doing. I love that. And I, I love that you mentioned uh, sometimes it is necessary to say, here's what you need to go. Now go do it now. And that absolutely works in a culture that's rich with positive reinforcement. In other words, as long as when their behavior gets going, it gets met with positive reinforcement for doing it. Um, what I found is that so many leaders just into that you know like you need to do it you need to do it now because they see it work but they're missing the other point that once behavior gets going we want to get in touch with some naturally occurring positive consequences so they're going to want to keep behaving in that direction otherwise you get the you know morale shot and everything like that and i'm guessing that um so 
do you have do you have people that work directly under you? You don't have to mention them or who they are. I'm not going to ask any questions, but like, how many folks do you have? People that do you have people that coach the leaders? Yes, or is it you? I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I ha- I have deputy superintendents and I have leadership coaches that I also supervise. And I, I, I take the same process with them. I I still I support their development and then and, and model the same sort of expectations. I want them to model for the principals that are on the campuses. Do you have, uh, um, let me see, the, let me actually not ask that question. Let me give you just a, a, a statement about um, some years ago in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> another planet, um, I was doing some uh, consulting in a, in a school district. And uh, of course, I've always been up on my uh, um, my uh, soapbox about, about the metrics. And um, we went to, my colleague and I went to give a talk at a, uh, it was we we really we always like to go out and speak to the principals, right? Like because if we don't, if they don't value what we're bringing to the table, if we don't, they don't value the, you know, if they don't feel safe with us, then don't bring us in there because, you know, you're going to get compliance and that's not what you want. It's going to be a waste of your money. It's going to waste our time. Don't, you know, don't do that. So we want them to see you. They want this to hear from us, and we're talking about the importance of positive uh, um, uh, leadership. But the um, the the person who was the right hand to the superintendent was um, not behaving in ways that I would say were aligned with our personal values and the values that I think that should be espoused by a leader. Um, they were being very judgmental. They were speaking down to the school leaders, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I always wondered, um, because I don't know, I was not able to get an audience and I had to step very carefully with that. Um, if uh, the superintendent knew how that that deputy that that person was treating whoever position was 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 speaking to the uh, the school leaders um, because in this was zoned off into like you know uh, you know six different zones with different 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 leaders over each zone and uh, in there were there were two that I noticed because we went around to different groups of principals that were engaging in the same kind of behavior. And uh, if you looked at the behavior problems in their zones, which were more fluent zones, they were having the worst behavior problems. So, of course, that's only correlation. We can't say that's causation, but all often left me wondering. And, and I always wonder about, all right, if we're if we want our coaches, I believe in coaching model 100%. I know you and I do that, right? I look at coaching, training, is, training, teaching, and skill acquisition, knowledge and skill acquisition, coaching, and supporting transference of skills into natural environment. That's how I see it, right? That's where the rubber meets the road. We switch from telling to asking, right? It becomes very important. But in order to coach, we need metrics. And we can't just be looking at student achievement metrics coming back to that again. Um, how do we know, to your point, that and you don't. I'm not asking you this question. This is rhetorical, right? It's just doubling down on what I said before. Um, how do we know that our the coach of the coaches is creating psychological safety for our school leaders? Because if we all agree that that school leader can impact student achievement by up to sixty something percent, we have to bring out the best in the people. And if we use compliance measures and make them feel bad and feel afraid and feel that they're going to get in trouble and feel that they're being blamed. That's going to trickle down. They're going to engage in the uh, blaming and all that stuff. So we have to say that that school leader's performance is a measure of us, their coach, right? So we can't be saying that for the school leader and teacher and student if we don't also accept accountability for that piece of it, positive accountability. How can we bring out the best in those? So 
Um, I think those metrics are extremely important that go beyond like student achievement. I think that school leaders should be self-monitoring reporting out to those coaches what's going on. And you need those other metrics that come around. So um, I think that stuff is incredibly important, brother. Incredibly important. It's all to your point. It's everything what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, again, it's monitoring all the different facets of, of school. It's not just school is not just about achievement. It's there's so it's a dynamic environment. There's so many different interrelated parts. And it's almost like the butterfly effect. If you change one little thing, it's going to impact everything else. But you need to know what all that everything else is. And you need to be able to m- measure your overall impact, but also your impact on a small level in different areas. And and yeah, I agree. If we're staying in this narrow mindset of school improvement is just measured by student test scores, well, you've missed the mark because there's so many other areas that we need to focus on other than just student achievement numbers. <laughs> man, you just gave me a good idea, man. I got to you take it and do it because you just said it, but I'd like to do a, a visual of the butterfly effect of poor leadership versus the butterfly effect of good leadership right and like kind of show it as a chain like going from like you know what could happen across an entire campus you know that would be interesting to have that i mean because it's so powerful i mean i i wrote a book a while back uh called five scientific laws of life and leadership behavioral karma and i like you know i don't i don't that maybe karma is a real thing i don't know you know so i'm not judging any religion or saying that but i but in term i do believe that there is uh, there's a ripple effect of our behavior, right? What we do impacts people around us and their behavior impacts their behavior around them and, and being in a school leadership position. Oh my gosh, you know, what is more important than education in, in our country and for the lives of people and the reduce poverty and reduce incarceration and all this stuff and improve quality of life. And so um, if we're gonna, if there is this kind of butterfly effect or this this ripple effect, I think we need to know. And the only way we're going to know is if we have metrics for that stuff. Again, coming back to your point, it's got to be more than student achievement. <laughs> let's so, do it. Let's do it together. I mean, that's let's let's right. chat, man. We have so much in common, man. I really like you, Michael. We share a lot of values. I, I, I yeah. do want to – we're going to chat offline here in a second. But a couple things before we go. Uh, one, I want you to like – if you could ma- wave a magic wand, right, and without going deep into it, what are three things that you would change right away in education if you wanted to – make a difference let's just start there oh goodness and it could have been what you just said you know what i mean like if you could do this right now students would know how to do this teachers know how to do that school leaders or could just be school leaders whatever i guess the biggest thing that i would change is from a policy level from a preparatory level focusing teaching educators human just learning and development how kids learn is going to be essential piece of that. And I don't know if you're familiar with the science of learning and development. Um, I, it's, it's a powerful model that really takes in developmental psychology, cognitive psychology, uh, neuro, neuroscience. They, they come together and they create this wonderful model that talks about the environment and how people develop. And then also talks about the different steps and the processes teachers can use to effectively teach students. There's a framework on it. And if we can start teaching that model, and I, I went into a little bit of it earlier today when we were talking, but we can start really teaching around how people learn and they develop in specific contexts and how context and experience impact people's lives, then we'll get somewhere. Right now, I think people think about teaching as it's, it's just 
it's an easy step-by-step process. I'm just going to follow this instructional strategy. And by doing this, I know my students are going to learn. Instead of realizing that there's, it's multifaceted. I know you're going to say something. What were you saying? Well, because I'm, I'm right with you, man. I mean, you're talking my language as a behavior scientist. We believe that, you know, besides you, there's genetics, there's your history, and there's your immediate environment. Now, we can't change your genetics. We can't change your history. But we can arrange your environment in such a way that's going to help produce, bring out the best in you. So 100% that I, I love that stuff. And I bet, you know, what you mentioned there is probably has a lot of close ties into, uh, you know, applied behavior analysis. So I would love to see the visual of that. That would be very cool. I have one. I'll send it to you. Yeah, send it to me, man. Cool. Very cool. I will send it to you. Yeah. So it's it's that piece of it, of that teaching teachers how to learn, uh, teach students how to learn effectively. But on the leadership side, it's really focusing more on the relationships and building capability and capacity for themselves and for their their staff. And I mentioned earlier, if I'm a PE teacher and I have to evaluate and support uh, a physics teacher and I have no background in physics, how am I going to do that effectively? And so it's it's helping at at the pre-service level, at the pre-leadership level, helping people realize, hey, these are things that I need to learn if I'm going to be an effective leader. I can't just go up, um, go into these classrooms with, with just my wits and say, hey, you got to do that a little bit better. Yep. I agree, man. We got to throw out so much stuff, man, and get down to the pivotal things people need to do because it's too much. If you pick on – if we choose the beha- pivotal behaviors people need to engage in, they're going to learn along the way, right? I, back in the day, I remember the original evaluations. I think it was one of the Marzano. And poor Marzano took a beating for this. He didn't tell people to make an evaluation. He just did meta-analysis, right? And it got bastardized and put into different evaluations. And there were like, I don't know, 42 behaviors that were complex that teachers were being evaluated on. Like, what are you going That's crazy. You know, what are the most important there? You know, there needs to be a level of importance. We need to boil these down to these very important things. And we got to have very concrete metrics for those. We got to make sure that teachers are trained to fluency and scaffold them. What's the most important, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, we got to do better for our teachers, man, so they can do better for our school, for our, for our students. Um, well, brother, if people will need to reach out to you for anything, ask you any questions, leave you any comments, whatever it is, uh, how could they get in touch with you? Absolutely. They, they can, uh, they can send me an email. That could be first thing. And that's going to be at michael.troop, T-R-O-O-P at vertexeducation.com. And vertex is V-E-R-T-E-X education. And well, I can I'll send you the that. show notes. If you sh- shoot me anything you have and I'll put it in the show notes so it's easy for people to find. Yeah, I can do that. They can reach me via email and, and we can, we can talk further. Okay, man. Well, I would love to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna talk to you offline here for a second, brother. Uh, man, thanks for coming on. I just get excited to talk with people who uh, just share, you know, similar values that I do, and I, I know that that you do. And I got excited. Uh, um, I talk more than I normally like to, but just because you prompted me with so many things, man, it was a lot of fun. I really had a great time today too. I, I really appreciate, it and, and I'm so thankful that you brought me on today because it was a great conversation. You are awesome at uh what you do and i learn a lot from you as well so this was a great conversation today all right dr troop thanks so much brother thank you traditionally many crisis management systems have taken a what's wrong with you approach that begins as a person escalates when addressing behavioral issues pcm as a trauma-informed approach rooted in implied behavior analysis shifts this perspective from what's wrong with you 
to what happened to you by having a complete picture of a person's situation in life, past and present. This approach is fundamental to applied behavior analysis and therefore PCM as it seeks to determine the root causes of behavior based on both the current environment and the individual's history as a means of individualizing education, treatment, and support. For more about PCM, check out crisisintervention.com.